Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Heavenly Father, sadly, so many times we don't trust you. And we let our fears overwhelm us. We create our own problems. And yet, if we turn to you, you promise not to forsake us. At our most desperate hour, when we had our greatest need, with death as our enemy, you sent your son to die for us, to give us eternal life. Father, help us today, as Steve teaches, to listen to your words and let you speak to our hearts and help us obey. In your son who obeyed you perfectly. Amen. Well, it is truly a privilege, and we are very glad to be down here in Dallas this morning. And I don't just say that because it was minus 17 in Omaha on Wednesday when we left. <laughs> it is a very good reason. Um, we love your weather, but more than that, we love the warm welcome, and we love your heart that this church has for missions. This, uh, we feel it, and... Uh, we feel at home here. Just for those who may be new to CBC, I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, I came to Dallas uh, to start seminary in 1985, and I had been in Dallas only three weeks, and I had been visiting churches, and the third church that I visited was CBC, and I loved the teaching that morning. But after the service, I don't know, some of the old timers remember Mark Brecken. He came up afterwards and he said, we're having ministry group tonight. We'd love you to come join us. And I said, okay. And I joined the ministry group that night and I never visited another church. And I was here all four years. And just uh, this has really been a precious, precious uh, church connection. So thank you for that. Um, that ministry group had the Let's had the Hodges, it had Ken, so it's great to see familiar faces from the old group. After seminary, actually the day of my graduation, I proposed to Mickey that I was, I was working off a checklist and I had finished seminary. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> but Mickey and I actually 
we met in Niger. We went, uh, Mike and I had gone short term in 1988, but we didn't really get to know each other. But over, subsequent to that experience, uh, Mike and I sensed that God was leading us back to the country of Niger. And so I went back the next year to join the mission, and there was Mickey. She had also felt the call of God, and we were in the same candidate class. So we got married, and uh, then we went to language school in 19... We got married in 90, got, went back to language school in 91, and we're back in Niger in 92. So we, as Tom said, we've been in Niger for 26 years. We worked amongst the desert tribe known as the Tamajic, or also known as the Tuareg. And then in 2003, I was asked to be the deputy country director. And after three years, I was, became the country director, and we served in that role for the last 12 years. But God has brought um, that chapter to a close, and we are being asked to be the regional directors for SIM's work in West Africa. So that is a synopsis of what you'll be hearing at the luncheon if you are able to join us. And there are some cards there. If you would like to receive our updates, just take one of those cards and send us an email and we'll put you on our update list. So as uh, John read this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 46. And in this psalm, we see the very purpose of God, a theme that is repeated throughout Scripture. And also in this psalm, we see an invitation to align our lives to God's purpose. And this psalm also addresses the fears that sometimes we feel as we consider that invitation to align our lives with what God's eternal purpose is for this history. So John did a beautiful job of reading. Um, I did my study in the NIV. He read in the NASB, but they're not very different. But if we, when we talk about the eternal purpose of God, we go down to verse 10. And actually, it's the second half of verse 10. This is where God's voice breaks into this psalm. It's in verse 10 that we hear God's voice, and he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That is not simply aspirational. That is prophetic. That is confirmed in John's revelation when he said around the throne of Christ would be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Psalm 2 says that the nations are Christ's inheritance. And so Christ is inviting the people of God to align themselves with this purpose. And he says, go into all the nations and make disciples. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. There are actually very strong forces that keep us from fully engaging in that one purpose, the eternal purpose of God. 
There are things that keep us on the sideline and keep us from engaging in his overarching purpose. Let me explain it in another way. Before there was time, there was a rebellion in the heavenlies. A rebellion against God. A rebellion against his authority. And in the Garden of Eden, this rebellion englobed mankind as man fell into sin. And ever since that rebellion, which is ongoing, there has been three camps of people. The first camp is by far the largest camp. It's the camp of the kingdom of darkness. And the people in the kingdom of darkness, whether consciously or unconsciously, knowingly or unknowingly, they are supportive, they are complicit with the rebellion against God. But because of God's grace and because of God's sovereign choice, there are people who have been called out of that kingdom of darkness and they have been placed into the kingdom of light. And their lives have been aligned with his eternal purpose of restoration and redemption. Unfortunately, there is a third category. There is a a third group. They're made up of people who have been called out of the kingdom of darkness as well. They have pledged their allegiance to the king like the second group, but their lives are not fully aligned with his purposes. There are things that keep them on the sideline. But much of the teaching of Scripture, the exhortations of Scripture, are exhortations to move from that third camp into the second camp and to join the few that are, whose heart is aligned with what God cares about most. And so the Lord Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. The Apostle Peter wrote, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. And of course the Apostle Paul said, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So I have a question I'm I'm asking myself, why do we find it so hard to leave the third camp and to join the second camp? And the conclusion that I've come to, it's our fear. It's fear. And another way to put it is, we simply have too much to lose in this world. Ironically, the ones who are most often found in the second camp, the ones who have their life aligned with the the sovereign, eternal purposes of God are those living in persecution. There is very little in this world that offers them comfort or security, but they're fearless in their, their witness, they're bold, and their eyes are fixed on eternity. In his book, an author who goes by um, uh, Nick Ripkin 
It's not his real name, but he wrote a book called The Insanity of God. And in that book, he interviewed a number of people who had lived through persecution, who were living in persecution. Amazing stories. And I remember he interviewed one man from the Eastern Bloc, the former Soviet uh, country in Eastern Europe. And this man had suffered unthinkable atrocities, and he would not stop witnessing. He would not keep his mouth shut about the, what the Lord Jesus had done for him. And he was imprisoned. He was beaten. And he made this statement to the author. He said, addressing those who live in freedom, he said, don't you ever give up in freedom what we would never give up in persecution. And that is our witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, don't ever give up in freedom what we would never give up in persecution. And yet, many of us are doing just that. We forego the freedom we have to be ambassadors to Jesus Christ, to be the disciple-maker. Because, quite frankly, this world does offer us benefits. We find comfort. We do find pleasure. We do find reasonable safety. We are sheltered in some ways from ridicule and disdain. We don't feel what others in other parts of this world feel. We have a lot to lose. Why would we risk those things? We suffer from maybe what we could call the rich young ruler syndrome. We are attracted, we are attracted to the benefits of being a child of God. But we're allergic to the challenging demands that our Lord may place on our lives. Well, if you're a child of God this morning and you're contemplating moving from that third group that stands on the sideline, keeps a safe distance, and moving into the second group where our lives are fully aligned with God's eternal purpose, then Psalm 46 is a beautiful psalm and will be a great comfort to you. So if you have your Bibles open, Let's look at that. The psalm starts off, God is our refuge and strength. With God is the only safe place in this world. The security that this world offers is an illusion. God is our refuge and our strength. He is our sanctuary. His strength becomes our strength. Secondly, he says, he is an ever-present help in trouble. That term ever-present in the original really actually means very, very near. In trouble, he is very, very near to us. But for most of us, our problem is we wonder, is that really true. 
Is that a promise that is too good to be true? In 2015 in Niger, when in a period of two days, 70 churches were destroyed, burnt to the ground, where was the ever-present help? In 2016, when a missionary from another mission was taken hostage by terrorists, and he's in captivity to this day, where is God's ever-present help? Where is God's help when missionaries get caught in the crossfire, whether it's political or religious? For that matter, where is God's help when a parent gets the phone call that one of their children have been hurt or has made a terrible choice? Or when we get the news from the doctor, the the news that we were dreading that we would get, where is God's help then? Jerry Bridges has said, sometimes it seems that it's easier to obey God than it is to trust him. Will he be there when I need him? If I knew that God would be there for me, I would follow him anywhere. I would say yes to anything, but I'm not sure. For the child of God... As our faith matures, our understanding of God has to grow. Somewhere in our understanding of who God is, there has to be a place to hold the heavy, the hard things that fall into our lives in a broken and fallen world. God is our refuge and strength. For us to understand that, there's three things that have to be clear in our minds. Number one, trouble will come. Trouble will come. Number two, God is in control. There is never a moment in our lives that God is not in complete control. And number three, he is always present with us. So number one, let's look at that. Trouble will come. No matter where we are, if we live long enough, trouble will find us. It will affect us in our lives. The scripture never promised us protection from trouble. In fact, we all live, don't we, that one phone call away from having our world turned upside down. Jesus said, in this world you will know trouble, but fear not, I've overcome the world. An actual fact, living in that third category where we keep our distance, that is an illusion. That does not protect us from trouble. The promise in this passage and the promise in Scripture is not that we are protected from trouble It says he is an ever-present help in trouble. Trouble will come. And the, the psalmist gives us a very powerful impression of what trouble feels like. He uses the literary device hyperbole, and he uses the imagery of natural disaster. 
Think for a moment what the worst natural disaster that you can imagine. Imagine that the earth, the ground underneath your house, your community, were to suddenly crumble as if in an earthquake and were to fall into the sea. Imagine a mountain. That's probably the most stable topography that we can imagine if it were to crumble into dust and fall into the sea. Or imagine a tsunami that slams into the shore with such force that even the mountains that are remaining shake. That's the imagery the psalmist uses here. And sometimes when we get that news, when trouble comes, it feels like an earthquake. It feels like a tsunami. God is our refuge and strength. Following that picture of chaos, the psalmist gives us another picture of a quiet river. He says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. That's probably a reference to an historic event that happened in 701 B.C. when the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, was threatening to besiege the city of Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah wisely brought a stream underground into the city of Jerusalem. And it was that stream that kept the besieged people alive. But even at that, the Assyrian army was surrounding the city of Jerusalem. It was a matter of time before the city would fall. That was trouble. But one night, the Lord visited the Assyrian army and slew 185,000 soldiers. So when the, the Israelites woke up, at break of day they woke up and they saw nothing dead soldiers. God had helped them at break of day. More than that historical reference, I think as the psalm unfolds, we see the contrast between the chaos and the vulnerability we feel in in this fallen world to the peace that comes in being a child of God and walking with our Lord. It's like a quiet stream that calms our heart. And when trouble comes, we have the assurance that one day the dark night of despair will end and he will bring the dawn of comfort and healing. God is our refuge and strength. Secondly, the psalmist says, God is in control. Nations are in an uproar Kingdoms fall. Many of the countries where you send your missionaries, nations are in an uproar. In Niger, we feel like we're in the center of a donut with trouble all around us. To the north, we have Algeria and Libya where terrorism is unchecked. Mali to the west, 
has been in strife and turmoil for years, and the north is still out of control. In the south, down in Nigeria, they have the Boko Haram, this group that is bent on bringing down the government of Nigeria, to bringing chaos to that country. And that has spilled into Niger in the east. And now Burkina Faso, another country to the west of us, a country that we've always considered very stable. They're losing their war on terror, and they're on the verge of war. Nations are in an uproar. That's one of your places where you send missionaries. It's the same thing in other parts of the world as well. The psalmist says, at no time is that outside of God's control. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The one who brought the universe into existence through his voice lifts his voice and all he would have to do is say the word and the world as we know it would melt. God is in control. And thirdly, God is with us. This is a theme throughout this psalm. It says an ever-present help. He is that stream. God is within her, Jerusalem. She will not fall. And now he says, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Lord Almighty, the actual rendering is exactly what Jonathan read. It's the Lord of hosts. The one who commands the resources of heaven is with us. He is very, very close. So God never promised that our our world would be trouble-free. In fact, he said trouble will come, but he said, I am in control and I am with you. Can you see the parallels between this psalm and the words of Christ when he was with his disciples that last time? before they ascended into heaven, before he ascended into heaven. Remember how he started? He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. I have all authority. I am in control. Go, therefore, and make disciples. But in order for the disciples to align their life with that command that the Lord was giving them, they had to know, They had to know that he was in control, but they also had to know that he would be with them. And the Lord Jesus says, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. The psalm ends with again this course. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress the God who brought the nation of Israel into existence in impossible circumstances, who freed the people of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and destroyed the army, the God of Jacob, he is our fortress. It's verse 10 where we hear the voice of God. All through this psalm so far, it's been in the third person. Suddenly in verse 10, God's voice breaks in and he says, be still 
and know that I am God. It's that word, be still, that calms the chaos. Calms the storms. It's that word that says, this far and no further, this rebellion ends now. The verses that follow, verses 8 to to 9, they look forward to the end times. When God brings this rebellion to an end, he said, Come and see with the works of the Lord, the desolation he has brought on the earth. He will make war cease to the ends of the earth, and he even will destroy the actual tools and implements of war. They will all be destroyed. The, he, the bow will be destroyed. The spear will be destroyed. The NASB says the chariots and other reading of it is the spear or the shields will be destroyed. God says this far and no further. This rebellion ends now. It's also that voice that calms our fears. It's that voice that reassures us that God is in control, that God is with us. And it's that voice we have to hear if we're going to align our lives with his purpose. Once we are able to take fear out of the equation, once we're able to take fear off the table, I want to encourage us this morning that actually aligning our lives with his purpose is not as complicated as we might think. Since I started working in Niger, I started a practice. When I would meet somebody who came to faith out of a Muslim background, a very difficult background, I would ask them a question. What did God use in your life to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ? And over the 26 years, I've heard scores and scores of stories. And sometimes I've heard stories of dreams and and visions. But there, there were two things that were consistent in everybody's story. Number one, I had a friend was a Christian. And he was a friend, or she was a friend like no other friend I ever had. And that friend loved me. Second thing that seemed to be universal in everybody's story is that friend gave me a Bible. In some way or another, put the word of God in my hands. A personal relationship, a friendship, and the word of God. And I've challenged myself and I've challenged my fellow missionaries if that is how God is breaking down the barriers and drawing people to himself, how should we be reordering our days, the schedule of our week or our month? And a friend of mine has developed that even further and he challenged me. He said, you know, we can't change the hearts of people. But what would the world be like if everybody in this world had one Christian friend 
one believing friend who lived out the commands of Christ before them and loved them and in one way or another put the word of God in a meaningful way, in a meaningful form into that person's hands. What if everybody in the world had somebody like that? This world would be transformed. Sadly, we're a long ways from that. If the statistics are correct, there is at least one-third of the world's population. Unless something drastic changes, they will live and die without ever having one single Christian friend. And again, if the statistics are correct, as the, the church is putting out missionaries into the world, into the harvest field, in those hard places where people are living and dying without having a single friend, we're putting about 3% of the missionary force and there's reasons for that. They're hard places. They're places where people are resistant. They're places where it's hard to get into. There's a group of men who are described in the Gospels. Actually, all three of the Synoptic Gospels, their story is told. It's the three men who had a friend who was a paralytic. These guys are my heroes. You know, they had a friend and they realized early on there was nothing they could do to heal their friend. But they knew somebody who could. And when Jesus came to their town, they decided to take their friend to Jesus. But when they got to the house where Jesus was teaching, the door was blocked. There were so many people, there was no way to get their friend through the door. But those men loved their friend and they took a step back and they said, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way to get our friend to Jesus. We need that commitment. We need that creativity in the 21st century. They found a way. It involved ripping up a roof. They made a mess, but they got their friend to Jesus. So if we're here this morning... And we're thinking, you know what, I don't know how much time I have left on this earth. But I want the time that I have left to be spent in line with God's purpose. I want my life to count for his eternal glory. Ironically, the way to get started is to stop is to stop and to hear the voice of the Lord saying, I am God. What the enemy does is he finds a way to distract us. He finds a way to misdirect the truth. He finds a way to cloud our thinking and to bring doubt on the fact, can I trust God? If I were to follow him, will he be there when I need him? Will I see his control? And when we begin to doubt that, we naturally move away from his purpose. We naturally put safe distance 
between us and what God may be calling us to. But when the bubble bursts and we see the truth for what it is, and we see that God, we see God's purpose, we see God's power, and we see his presence with us, instinctively, naturally, we move towards him. So as I close, let me just leave you with three implications of this teaching from this passage. Number one, be still. It's the number one thing that we need in our lives. Somewhere in our lives, we need space for contemplation of who God is. His power, he is in control. His plan, I will be exalted among the nations in his presence. We do not walk this path alone. He has promised that he will be there. And it's when the assurance of these things go deep into our minds and our hearts that we, our lives move in line with his. Secondly, start living as though we have nothing to lose. As you think about it, what does this world really have to offer us by way of security or eternal comfort? Very little. Very little. Let's embrace whatever the Lord leads us to. Whatever he puts on our hearts, let's embrace it with courage. Let's live as though we have nothing to lose. And lastly, let's let the love of Christ compel us. There are barriers that are holding people in darkness, and the thing that breaks down those barriers is Christ's love. You know, Jesus was not that concerned about the hole in the roof. You can only imagine the debris that fell. If you look at the Sunday school pictures, it's a nice square hole, you know, and everybody underneath is clean. That's not how it was. It was a mess. What Jesus saw was a faith motivated by love. You think about when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Is it not true there was somebody there who loved you? There was somebody there who shared with you and modeled for you the Christian life. Can we be that person to somebody else? Who has God placed around us? Do they have one good Christian friend who loves them? One Christian friend who can put the word of God into their hands. And as we think about the challenge of the world, the parts of the world where people are living and dying, what would have to change? What would we do, could we do to make sure that even in the darkest corners, people have a witness to the truth, a good Christian friend who loves them? Let's pray. Father, This morning we've looked into your word and we've been reassured you are our refuge. You are our strength. You've promised in times of trouble when it comes crashing in like a tsunami and shakes our world like an earthquake, you are there with us. We have seen your eternal purpose. You will be exalted among the nations. You will 
be exalted in this earth. And Lord, as you bring history to a close, we ask that you would find us faithful. Lord, our time on this life, in this life is short, and sometimes we wonder, does our short life really make a difference? But you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness, you've brought us into light, and we have inherited the command of Christ to make disciples. And someday, Lord, new disciples will come and they also will inherit this command. But Lord, in our time, the time that we walk this earth, Lord, may our lives be about your purpose. Father, we pray for those around this world who are locked in darkness and unless something changes, Father, they will live their entire life without knowing one of your children. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us, Lord, that spirit of those men that says there's got to be a way to bring these people to Jesus. Give us courage, Lord. Give us the faith. And may we walk without fear following you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.